People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And today we have the great pleasure to welcome back to the studio Richard Pierce. Last year I interviewed him when his book Nicole came out. And I asked him in the interview, what are you currently working on? And he mentioned the lion industry. And the book Kill, Cuddle Me, Kill Me is now out. And last year, we interviewed Richard over the phone. Today, we have the great pleasure of welcoming, welcome, welcoming him into our studios here at Chai FM. Welcome, Richard. Welcome to Chai. Thank you. Thank you. You're not a stranger to our listeners, and your books sell very well in South Africa, so you're not a stranger to the reading public. I'm going to ask you, please, to introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms. Um. I think of myself, I guess, as a communicator. I don't think I'm a particularly brilliant writer or a particularly brilliant anything, but I think I'm quite good uh, at communicating. So that's what I try and do. I try and, and play my part in conservation by using communication skills, which means writing books, writing magazine articles, uh, doing a bit of radio, doing a bit of TV, uh, and so on and so forth, and making films. So I think of myself primarily as a communicator. Uh, and with these, with these books uh, in South Africa, they all follow a sort of common path. Uh, and I try and turn them into interesting stories for the general public who perhaps might not normally be interested in animal stories. So I try and get real live animals, real life animals, existent animals, uh, and, and make it into an adventure story. Last year, as I said, I, I interviewed you when your book Nicole was published. Yeah. And before that, you had written books, The Poacher's Moon and Giant Steps. Yeah. Briefly, just fill us in what each of those books are about. The first was The Poacher's Moon. And The Poacher's Moon was kind of an accident. Um, I was actually doing some work uh, on a small private game reserve near Cape Town. Uh, and I came across this story of two rhino that had been attacked and poached really brutally. Their horns had been hacked right out of their faces, so they were never going to regrow. And they were called Higgins and Lady. Uh, and um, it was just a sort of very interesting story. And, and they were clearly very close to each other. Lady might have been getting pregnant, etc., etc. So I thought, hey, there's a brilliant story here, and I've got two animal stars. Uh, and so I approached the owner of the reserve uh, and... Uh, turned that into the poacher's moon which is an absolutely true story from one end to the other she isn't pregnant yet uh, and when she does get pregnant i'll be bringing out a new book to bring the whole thing up to date and that would be a fantastically happy ending to a, a sad and brave story and then came giant steps which again was a true story about two elephants that had suffered and been abused and so on and so forth. One of them particularly had suffered and been abused. The other one actually is a very well-known elephant, uh, appeared in lots of films and movies and ads and stuff in South Africa. So true story again about two elephants. And I felt privileged really to have the opportunity to use these guys as a communications tool to be able to tell their story and, and have a kind of subliminal conservation message going throughout get people into the animals and then once they're hooked if you like then then get them into the whole animal thing and then nicole because basically sharks were my thing for most of the last 30 years uh, and nicole was a story waiting to be told and and i'd never i'd always sort of chickened out of telling it i guess because i didn't know how to tell it i mean you've got a fish that swims from South Africa to Australia, turns around and swims back. 20,000 or something kilometres worth of water and a fish. How do you turn that into, into a book? So that's why I never did it. But, but as the years went by, um, I thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. And then I thought, actually, this is a gift because we know what the tag told us. So we know where she started, we know where she finished, we know her depth of travel and her speed of travel, but we don't know much else. So as a writer, that gave me fantastic freedom to, to invent, because who can say whether I'm right or wrong? So I had a lot of fun with that in the middle with Nicole. Um, and, and that's, you know, to touch with, that's a very good story as well. And people still follow sharks as a result of that book. I've had a lot of mail telling me that people who weren't interested at all in sharks, and then Cuddle Me, Kill Me. Um, Cuddle Me, Kill Me it was another one that was difficult, because I didn't know where I was going to get my characters from. I didn't know where I was going to get two lions from. And then all of a sudden, a lot of things happened at once. I saw a movie called Blood Lions, which really, as, a, as a writer, as a journalist, that really interested me. Because if you like, that was the case for the prosecution. So I wanted to know if there was a case for defence. 
So that was a challenge. Um, my wife had been badgering me for three or four years before then to write a book about cant hunting because it's a particular passion of hers. Uh, she's obviously anti-cant hunting. So Blood Lions, and then along came my two characters. By chance, I met uh, some American friends who knew two girls who were running a sanctuary who had two lions that I went and met, and they fitted the bill, and so there we are. That's how Cuddle Me, Kill Me started. In brief, what do you describe in the book Cuddle Me, Kill Me? Which aspects of the, of the, the lion industry? It's a pity it has to be brief, but I understand that it does because it's an incredibly multifaceted, multi-layered, multi-dimensional thing. Uh, the book starts off by telling the story, the true story, of the two lions that I went and met. Then we move into, we move out of the third person into the first person, and then it's myself and my wife on the road, interviewing people, visiting people, going around breeding farms, going around petting establishments, going around places where they walk with lions, uh, and just visiting everywhere we could. And we visited 40-something places. Uh, the next phase of the book is sort of interviewing stakeholders, people like the breeders, uh, people like the hunters, uh, and so on and so forth. So giving them their say. And what I tried to do in the book was provide balance. It's really difficult to provide balance because it's quite difficult to stay emotionally detached. When you see appalling stuff, um, you know, it's very difficult to... I think I, I think I made it. I hope I did anyway, because most people have said it's got balance. And the final section of the book, uh, well, then, the end of part three takes you on an actual lion hunt. And that was very interesting because that's based entirely on the description of a lion hunt that was given to me by a professional hunter. And then the Breeders' Association... Uh, said they would take me on an actual hunt. So I went with them, and the man who was going to be doing the, the shooting uh, decided the day before he didn't want me there, which, I, I look, I fully understand. Who, who wants a writer, especially after all the Cecil stuff and what have you? Um, so they were really good to me. They took me on a sort of dry, dummy-run hunt. So I had been talked through it by the president of the Professional Hunters Association. He told me what these hunts were like and what happened and then I actually saw it on the ground and what I saw on the ground was exactly the way it had been described for me so that is the hunting chapter then I sent it back to a professional hunter to check just to make sure that I got it all right and then the final section of the book deals with the lion today conservation because lions are in trouble there may be as few as about 15,000 the IUCN estimate 20 to 30,000 but probably towards the lower end of that scale Uh, there's an outfit called Lion Aid who dispute that and think it may be 13 to 15,000. So whichever way you look at it, probably somewhere between 15 and 20,000, this is a species that used to, there used to be 200,000 lions. We're now down to 15 to 20,000. How did you research the lion industry? Obviously, the facts that you were looking were not lying around for the public to see. How did you get behind the the facade of the industry? We, well, you know, Bloodlines did us no favours because it made everyone very wary uh, and they, they, they would spot someone like me coming a mile off. So we hit it from three dimensions. We put someone undercover into two breeding establishments uh, and he did a really good job. He just gave us an insight into the volunteers inside and how the whole thing worked. So that was the undercover element. My wife and I went in posing as tourists. So that was, if you like, kind of undercover as well. But we had to be careful because these guys who take you around in, in the petting establishments and the walking establishments, they're pretty highly trained now at spotting people who are behaving in an abnormal way, not the normal tourist. So that was that one. And the other one, we just went through the front door and knocked on the door and asked for an interview. So we worked on three levels to, to try and get to the bottom of things. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with Richard Pierce. He's the author of a number of books with a very strong environmental and a conservation theme. Last year we interviewed him in his book, Nicole, about a great white shark's journey. 22,000 kilometers round trip from Cape Town to Australia and back. Today we're in conversation about his new book, Cuddle Me, Kill Me, about the lion industry. We'll be back with more conversations straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with Richard Pierce. We're discussing his latest book, Cuddle Me, Kill Me, which is about the lion industry. This is an industry built on lies 
and also on the manipulation of idealistic young volunteers and of the public. What are some of those lies? I think the main one for the volunteers is that they're helping conservation. They buy the idea that they're coming to help raise orphaned cubs. What they're not told is that those cubs have been orphaned quite deliberately because they've been taken away from their mother. So they're sold the line that the lioness has deserted them or there's been some other kind of accident or something, and they think they're doing good. And, and the difficulty is it's, it's an interesting, exciting thing to do. I've done it, uh, and I understand the appeal. And this mainly appeals to young women, for some strange reason, sort of northern European women, Dutch women, Scandinavian women, British women, between 20 and 30... Uh, that's the sort of main market for what's called voluntourism. And there's a huge attraction. So the lies they're peddled is that they're helping conservation. Um, but very soon that gets sort of submerged in enjoyment of what they're doing. So what we've got to try and do is stop them coming in the first place, expose the lies so they don't buy it. Because they can volunteer in genuine places. There are genuine sanctuaries in South Africa that need help and volunteers. So we want to try and direct them towards those. And the, the whole idea about petting baby cub lions, and it's part of, or it's a very big part of the attraction of the game parks. That itself also is not sold to the public in terms of the truth. No, it's not. I mean, um, it's, it's not really, it almost doesn't need selling to the public because it's an attractive thing to do. People want to do it. Lion Park stopped it. And they suffered financially immediately. Uh, you know, the, their gate numbers went right down because they weren't offering cub petting. So that's a hard financial reality. Um, but I don't think they need to tell the truth or not tell the truth. People want to do it. And cub petting is, when it's on offer, people will do it. But it's not good for the cubs themselves. Absolutely not. I mean, I've seen cubs so tired that they were struggling uh, and they were falling asleep as people picked them up. I've seen them crawling away from the people who've paid 60 rand, 100 rand, 150 rand, whatever it might be. To pay. And then as soon as they start to crawl away, a handler comes and grabs them and brings them back again. It's very, very bad. And think of the disease possibilities. I mean, these people are going in. They may be pet owners. They may be taking diseases to these cubs. It's, it's wrong at every level. And as you say in your book, a lion cub needs at least about 20 hours out of 24 hours sleep in a day, and that's to promote healthy development. If they're being petted and uh, cuddled for a few hours and they're not, they're not able to get their 20 hours of sleep, it will stunt their growth as well. In your research, because you gave balance to all the different parts of the industry, you must have come across a number of very interesting people on both sides of the divide. Let's look at the heroes. I was interviewing a woman this morning who I think is a hero. Um, she's called Karen Trendler. She works for the NSPCA. Um, she's had personal drama and illness to cope with. She's been a dedicated conservationist and animal welfare person for all of her working life. Uh, and even though she's having to cope with, with personal difficulties at the moment, her energy is extraordinary. Her commitment and her passion are extraordinary. She would be high... Uh, on my list of heroes. It's a really difficult question because I've met so many that um, I could be in trouble here with others. Uh, Ian Mickler, uh, you know, Ian, uh, when I very first met Ian, who was the main protagonist in the film Bloodlines, um, I warmed to Ian, as I said in the book. Um, he's not only very articulate, hugely intelligent, knows his stuff, but he looks like a cross between a sort of pirate and the Rolling Stones. And I think both of that's quite good fun as well, you know. So, look, look some great people, I, I, you know, great people. And the two you said, the two ladies... Oh, and, of course, yeah. the two ladies at Panthera. I mean, you know, they, they are quite extraordinary, if you think about it. I mean, two young women, and one of them from Norway, went back and, and risked everything. She, she, she got a loan based on her property and then use that money to come back here and buy some ground and then start rescuing the animals that they'd come across and so on and so forth. So they sort of hung themselves out to dry. They could very easily have failed. They could have run out of money before the permissions came through. I mean, they had pitfalls, at every potential pitfalls at every step of the way, but they didn't stop. Uh, they went all the way through, and they're, they're running a brilliant sanctuary now. Where's, where's Panthera? It's at Stamford near Hermanus in the Western Cape. What is the reality of canned lion hunts? Why those specific lions and then what happens? One of the problems we're talking about this is just the definition of canned hunting. 
Um, ask six people, you'll get six different versions of it. What I mean is an animal that's placed into an enclosure, no matter how big, within reason, or small, and therefore is hunted without a means of escape. That's what, and so it's a prepared hunt. The animal's put in there. It's not a wild animal. It's a bred animal put in there, ultimately can't get away. What happens, which I describe in the book, on the day of the hunt, uh, is that you go into the... You go and sight your rifle in. Uh, you go into the enclosure, and then you drive around normally sandy tracks, and a lot of this happens up near the Kalahari. Um, and when you see lion tracks crossing, lion spore, lion prints crossing a track, you can see which way the lion's going. By, and then you can drive around that on the track because these are in sort of quadrants. There are tracks everywhere. And if those tracks don't come out again, you know the lion's in that bit of ground. So then you've got to, by law, get out of the vehicle uh, and go and locate it uh, before, you, before you can shoot it. It has to be shot on foot. But they're shortening the odds because it's not just, say, 5,000 hectares and you've got to go and look for the lion and track it. You're shortening the odds by driving around and waiting for lion marks across a sandy track. And then if they don't come out, and this is a deliberate situation, which, as I just said, is sort of quadranted, they don't come out, you really are making life much easier for yourself. The lions who are hunted, these aren't wild lions. They're captive-bred lions. It's important, I think, to, to mention that captive breeding does fall into two halves, at least at the beginning level. You've got the half, or it's not a half, it's probably 30 to 40%, that's the, one of the figures I've been given, where the animals are removed from their mothers very soon after birth, a few hours or a few days. And then they're, you know, then they're reared by hand and they're, they're cuddled and petted and eventually walked with, etc. So that's one. That's called tourism breeding. The other type of breeding is called ranch breeding. Uh, and I believe there is a distinction because ranch-bred cubs are not taken away until they're weaned. So once they're weaned, they're then taken away and they're then they're kept as wild as possible uh, so that they are not human habituated. But ultimately, it's a bullet for both halves. Which it doesn't matter, you know. What ultimately the end is a bullet. Can any of these lions be rehabilitated and reintroduced back into the wild? The breeders would tell you yes. They say that they have uh, a case where a lion, a lioness, were released uh, into a reserve. Not sure where. I'm not sure they're saying where, and that they hunted successfully, which is not unusual. I mean, a lion will hunt, uh, and then they reproduce. So then they had cubs, and there's video footage to show that. The scientists and the ecologists and the conservationists say that really doesn't prove very much at all. Um, so the scientists will argue very strongly that captive bred lions should never be released back into the wild. What else happens to lions that are bred besides the hunts? There's also a trade in bones. There's, there's, other, there's other purposes to... Indeed. One of the things, the emphasis that has changed since I've been you know, researching this and involved in this, this, this story, um, it was all about canned hunting, or most, mostly about canned hunting when Blood Lions was made and when I started my research. But the bone trade which is the selling of lion bones masquerading as tiger bones because there aren't enough tiger bones to produce things like tiger wine and tiger cake in the Far East. So to fill the gap, because it's an ever-expanding market, they're using lion skeletons as, instead because you can't really tell the difference. It would take an incredible expert, once there's no skull attached to it, to tell uh, a lion from a tiger uh, skeleton. So the bone trade is really becoming a very significant factor in lion breeding and a very significant incentive. We're trying to nail figures in the new project I'm working on, and I've had figures quoted me, uh, to me between one and $3,000 for the skeleton. So it's quite a financially attractive uh, operation because these animals breed very easily. This is uh, all happening within South Africa on farms that we might pass when you go on a highway between yeah. Joburg yeah. and yeah. another city. There are some telltale signs. There are some telltale signs. You learn what to look out for. Uh, a lot of these places are located near chicken farms because then the, the dead chickens and intensive uh, rearing of chickens means an awful lot of dead chickens. Uh, the lions are a waste disposal service. Uh, donkeys where there shouldn't be donkeys, because, uh, you know, that's another telltale sign. So if you're driving along, you know, if I'm driving along now after what I've been doing, I sometimes get quite suspicious as what might be going on behind that fence.
This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with Richard Pierce, the author of Cuddle Me, Kill Me, quite an explosive expose of the lion farming industry in South Africa. We'll be back with more conversations straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Richard Pierce is joining us in the studio. He is a very respected writer on matters conservation and environmental. He's in the studio today to discuss his book, Cuddle Me, Kill Me, which is, as you've heard the whole way through the interview, about the lion industry in South Africa. Let's look at what the public can do. People will go out, they'll read the book, they will be outraged, but we've got to do something with that sense of outrage. Firstly, we all go to game parks. It's one of the perks of living in South Africa. We have access to our wildlife in parks that are very close to where we live, and we have proximity to wild animals. What should we, 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 we encourage tourists coming to South Africa to go visit these game parks or these lion parks? What should we look before we go to a, what should we look for before we go to a, a lion park or a game park? Look, genuine game parks need support. Uh, you know, they, they need money to manage themselves properly, etc. Um, petting should stop. So I would encourage people not to go and pet lions. Walking with lions should stop. It's, apart from anything else, very dangerous for the humans concerned. And there are accidents on a regular basis you never hear about. Uh, volunteers rearing cubs should stop. These are mostly foreign volunteers. So all of those aspects, the public can really play a big part because take away all those profit streams and lot of this breeding for the tourism part of land breeding would definitely stop. And so I would really urge everybody to keep their eyes open and when they see, no matter how genuine the little reserve might look, if it's a place offering petting or offering walking with lions or anything like that, don't go there, please. Find another reserve to go to that isn't doing that. Support that one instead. Don't buy lion products. It's not only tiger wine in the Far East, which actually is lion wine a lot of the time, uh, or tiger cake. You can buy claws, you can buy teeth, you can buy all sorts. Don't buy them, don't buy them. Because if there's no market for these things, there's no reason, there's no money. If there's no money, there's no reason to breed them, and then they, the whole thing will stop. So I really would urge the public to support the right people, and most of it's common sense. Look on the internet, get involved, sign the petitions, and there are petitions all over the world all the time. Um, you know, and please do get involved. We need the world's public um, to get involved, and we need the South African public in particular to get involved and not support places that are offering these activities. Is there anything else we can do? You said signing petitions. Are there any moves in South Africa to change legislation so that the, the whole legal environment within which game parks and breeding programs exist might change? Such is the concern that there was a parliamentary colloquium uh, in Cape Town in August where the whole issue of the captive breeding of lions, the breeding of lions in captivity, was, was debated with representatives from both sides. That is now a process that's going on. The, the, um, Edna Malewa sadly died. She is one of the ministers that would have been very concerned, so that may, I'm not quite sure, but that may slow things down a bit because her, her department would have to play a part in it. But that is definitely something to watch, and we hope that that process will move towards legislation in the end. Now, you in South Africa, the book was published a few months ago, but I knew you were coming to South Africa, so I delayed talking about the book and uh, till now so that we could actually get an interview rather than just my thoughts on the book that I had read. Mm -hmm. Why are you in South Africa? What is the current project that you're working on? Current project is really fascinating. Well, they're all fascinating, but this is an incredibly fascinating one. We've got a kind of amazing Jaws flip over in Hanspai in the Western Cape. In Jaws, which, of course, was fictional, uh, the presence of a great white shark was threatening a town, a fictional town in New England. Uh, in the real life, in the Western Cape, the absence of great white sharks is threatening Hans Bay and all the jobs and all the... Why have the sharks disappeared? Because two orcas, two orcas in particular, killer whales, are specifically targeting the great whites. And so the great whites, when these orcas rock up, they've learnt now that those orcas are coming for lunch, 
So the Great Whites flee. They leave the area. So we've got a really fascinating story there, another real story, and the orcas are called port and starboard because one of them has a fin that flops one way, the other has a fin that flops the other way, and port and starboard have learned how to kill Great Whites and take their livers out. So it's a fascinating story on two levels. It's fascinating just because it's a fascinating human story. But also, we're watching natural history evolve in front of our eyes. Because if all the great whites left that area, from a, uh, a marine ecology perspective, it would become a completely different area. The whole marine ecology will change with the removal of an apex predator. So that's my, that's my new one. It's called Orca, and I'm writing it at the moment. Are orcas uh, indigenous to South African no, waters? they're all over the world. They're, they're probably the most, apart from humans, they're probably the most widespread mammal on the planet. And then you're also in South Africa to form a documentary. Yeah. yeah. That's, the, that's a documentary on the Cuddle Me, Kill Me. Well, it's a sort of follow-on. You know, Cuddle Me, Kill Me stopped. I mean, I put the pen down on that 10 months ago. And so lots changed since then, a lot's moved on. As we talked about, the bone trade has become at least as important, maybe more important than, than, than canned hunting in terms of reason to breed, etc., etc. So things have moved on. So the film is going to sort of, if you like, carry on from where uh, Cuddle Me, Kill Me stopped and look at things in a different way because we've got different things to talk about. We've got the bone trade to talk about that I didn't really cover. Uh, we've got the possible uh, or the claimed in-country processing of bones. So bones are being processed in South Africa into the product that then goes to the Far East. So there are new angles to look at. So that's what the film... And these angles are all also new since Blood Lions. So that's what this documentary is doing. And I'm trying again, to be fair... I'm trying to say, to give an equal shout to both sides. And rather than be judgmental, what I'm trying to do is to give platforms to people's arguments from, from all, all across the spectrum. And then the viewers can make their minds up and we've given them the facts. So that's a continuation of the Cuddle Me, Kill Me story. Sort of a follow-on, yeah. But because it's a film, it has the potential to reach a far larger audience. We are hoping that it's going to be a global audience, yes. The, there's... Uh, all the questions that I've had that bothering me since I finished reading the book, I've been able to get great answers from you. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here in the studio, having you share your passion for conservation, your absolute expertise on all these areas that you have researched from the rhino hunting to the elephants and then to the whale, to the sharks and then to the, to the, to the lions. And now, to killer whales as well. At Chayafin, we, we, on, on our book show, People of the Book, we do take conservation very seriously. We've had a number of authors who've written books about these topics. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had the author of An Elephant in My Kitchen, oh, Francoise yeah. yes, Malby Anthony. She was here talking about elephants. Yeah. And it's an absolute pleasure and it's our privilege to be able to take your message and broadcast it to the whole of Johannesburg and bring the message of Cuddle Me, Kill Me to a wider audience for your time and for your passion and for your book. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. And let me just sort of make one comment. I really get frightened of thinking of myself as an expert. It's very kind of you to say it. I'm, I'm, I'm a communicator and I'm a writer, and I just am privileged to work on the subjects I do. But the real experts are the guys who I picked out as the heroes earlier and people like that who are doing it all day, every day. I just kind of move from one to another and do my bit along the way, I hope. But thank you for having me here. It's been great. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. That was our interview with Richard Pierce, the author of Cuddle Me, Kill Me, an investigative uh, book on the, such a strange phrase to say, the lion industry, the breeding of lions, the cuddling of lions, the hunting of lions, and as he mentioned, the processing of lion bones for sale in the Far East. For the rest of the show, a number of books that have uh, been released recently into the book market, a wide selection, there's non-fiction, there's fiction, there's... Uh, Science fiction, uh, murder mysteries and thrillers, something for everyone. Both 
the books that Richard Pierce spoke about in his interview and all the books I'm going to be speaking about right now have been posted to our Facebook page. So go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. You'll find the list of the books that are the subject of the show, plus pictures of the covers of the books to make it easier for you to identify these books next time you go into a bookshop and you're not sure what to buy. So you pull out your smartphone, you go to our Facebook page, you'll find all these books and all the books that we've been reviewing on this show for the last two and a half years on our Facebook page. The book that I'm going to talk about right now is called The Escape Artists. It's by Neil Bascom, and it's a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison breakout of World War I. What drew me to this book more than the actual book itself is the fact that Neil Bascom wrote a book called Hunting Achman a few years ago, which was a retelling of the hunt for Achman and the court case of, uh, of Eichmann in Israel. And since I read that book, I've watched for any other books by Neil Bascom. This is World War One rather than World War Two, but once again, a very, very exciting story. It tells the story of how a band of Royal Flying Corps air, airmen masterminded the most courageous mass breakout from Germany's harshest World War One prisoner of war camp. In the winter trenches and flakful scars of the First World War, captured soldiers and pilots narrowly avoided death only to find themselves imprisoned in Germany's brutal prisoner of war camps. The most infamous was Holzminden, the landlocked Alcatraz that incarcerated the most troublesome allied prisoners. Holzminden, the black hole, was ruled by camp commandant Karl Niemeyer, under whose sadistic temper prisoners were known to be tortured and shot, not least the escape artists. After several unsuccessful escape attempts from different camps in one year, a group of Allied prisoners hatched an elaborate plan that would demand feats of engineering, disguise, forgery and and astonishing courage. Once beyond Holtzminden's watchtowers and round-the-clock patrols, this handful of the Kaiser's 2.3 million half-starred prisoners would then attempt a heroic 150-mile dash through enemy-occupied territory to reach Free Holland. Drawing on never-before-seen memoirs, Neil Bascom brings this speculative narrative to life amid the despair of the Great War and the heart of patriotic duty. Tragic, funny and irresistibly suspenseful, this is the little-known story of the greatest prisoner of war breakout of the First World War. What I would like to share with you is just the very beginning of the book, which the, the prologue, which really does set the scene very, very well. So this is from The Escape Artists by Neil Bascom. July 14th, 1941. For all his wife, Elsie, and his two young children knew, Jim Bennett was leaving for an overnight business trip. As he was the eponymous owner of a small import-export business that traded in China, couture clothes, and other fine goods, they expected such absences, even during wartime, perhaps especially during wartime. No effort could be spared in keeping the bottom line from seeping red. Dressed in a light grey tailored suit, with a white linen handkerchief in his pocket, he bid his family goodbye and walked out of the front door of his five-bedroom brick house in Northwood, a bucolic neighbourhood threaded with golf courses 15 miles northwest of London. The son of a farmer, Bennett had come a long way from the rolling hill fields of Somerset, carrying a brown leather suitcase heavier than one might imagine he would need for an overnight. Bennett joined the others heading down Kew Ferry Road at morning rush hour to the Metropolitan Line London Underground Station. Few could keep to his normal brisk pace, even with the skies threatening a thunderstorm. At 49, and with a thinning salt and, and with thinning salt and pepper hair, Bennett remained trim and fit. On the half-hour ride into the city, there was plenty of time to page through the Daily Express 
Its headlines read, Moscow denies claims by Berlin and Nazis flee from Syria. Most interesting to Bennett was the story about the British air raid on Bremen in Germany. He switched lines at Baker Street and arrived soon after at Paddington Railway Station, not far from his offices. Three months before, the station had suffered a direct hit by German bombers that demolished the southwest corner and killed 18 people. In quick order, the rubble was hauled away from the tracks and the train service resumed. Still, the piles of bricks and hollowed-out windows bore witness to the destruction that could rain down on London at any moment. Bennett boarded the 1030 Great Western to Penryn, Cornwall, and settled into the second-class carriage for the five-hour journey. His firm had no business in the southwestern tip of England, nor was he travelling there for its sandy beaches, now fortified with pillboxes, minefields and barbed wire enclosures against the threat of a German attack. Instead, he was headed to the Royal Air Force Base at Predanak to lecture fighting squadron pilots on what to do if they found themselves captured or on the run in enemy-occupied territory. In his suitcase was an Optisco projector that looked like a small cannon, a number of slides, purses of foreign currency, silk maps and compasses hidden in button studs. Early that morning, before his family awoke, he had taken these items out of the locked chest of drawers he kept at, in the house. While running his import-export business, Bennett also worked for MI9, a top-secret organisation within British military intelligence. Recruited immediately after its founding, he was sworn to secrecy, forbidden from revealing his involvement even to family or friends. MI9 had been started in 1939 and the leadership of Major Norman Crocat, a medal veteran of the Royal Scots and former stockbroker. Its purpose was to codify and teach principles of evasion and escape for the use of Allied soldiers, airmen and naval personnel caught behind enemy lines. We're reading from the prologue of Neil Bascom's book, The Escape Artists, a band of daredevil pilots in the greatest prison breakout of World War I. And we'll be back with the end of the prologue and a number of other books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are discussing a book, The Escape Artists by Neil Bascom. It's published by John Murray Publishers. And it's the story of a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison breakout of World War I. I'm reading from the prologue. Crocat did not... Crocat did not draw these principles from boys' own fiction or mothballed old tales, although there were stories of plenty of dramatic breakouts in the history of war and strife. Empress Matilda escaped from Oxford Castle in 1142, avoiding her pursuers by hiding in, by hiding in the snow under a white sheet. In 1621, the Dutch jurist Hugo Grotius was smuggled out of Leuverstein Castle, where he had been held prisoner in a book chest. In 1870, during the Franco-Prussian War, the French statesman Leon Gambetta rose up and away from a besieged Paris in a hot air balloon. Winston Churchill himself escaped from a Boer prisoner of war camp in South Africa by jumping over a fence and making off. These true stories were sedate compared with the adventures of the literary Count of Monte Cristo, to say nothing of Odysseus's supernatural deliverance out of Calypso's grotto. For MR9, however, Crocat called upon the lessons learned from the first-hand experiences of those who had escaped the Germans in World War I, and one of the, and one of the participants in the greatest and most successful breakout of that war was Jim Bennett. Late in the afternoon, Bennett arrived at Redruth Station, where he was met by an RAF driver who whisked him southward to the newly built Predanak airfield near Mullion. On the apron of grass stood a line of Hawker Hurricanes and Bristol Bufighters. They were a sight more advanced than the wood linen and wire-strung contraptions in which Bennett used to hunt U-boats as a Royal Naval Air Service sub-lieutenant. At 8.45pm, his slide projector at the ready, Bennett stood at the head of a crowded hall. In his hand, he held a sheet of paper roughly torn from a notebook, upon which he had scrawled his lecture notes in bullet point. Addressing the assembled airmen, 
he spoke of the possibility of their being taken prisoner by the enemy and stressed that if captured, they had a duty to escape. Britain needed them back in its ranks. An escape attempt would also divert the attention of the Nazis, requiring the allocation of men and resources that might otherwise be used on the front lines against Britain and its allies. Bennett added that if captured, the men's best opportunity to flee was the earliest opportunity, either while in a makeshift detention spot or during transport to a POW camp. Once arrived, their chances of breaking out diminished precipitously. Yet, even suffering extreme mental and physical stress, Bennett stated they were to remember that their war effort was by no means over. He went on to detail escape routes from Germany and to explain how to create a simple code for secret messages. He stressed the need to stay fit during captivity and the importance of having a compass in which to reach the border. All of these lessons he framed within the context of his own story of crash landing into the sea in 1917, 15 miles from the Zierbrucher, the Belgian port controlled at the time by the Germans. After he and the plane's pilot had drifted in the downed craft for more than an hour, a U-boat surfaced beneath them and its crew seized the two men. Bennett illustrated his account with slides showing his aircraft, the camps in which he had been imprisoned, coded letters and tools used in various escape attempts. He spoke about Holzminden, the most notorious prisoner of war camp of the Great War, and the tunnel he and his fellow inmates had dug to escape its walls. However, months they had scraped away dirt, clay and stone to burrow an underground passageway inch by inch. He chronicled their preparations for the treacherous 150-mile journey through Germany to reach the Dutch border, how they had smuggled in supplies and hidden them in fake ceiling beams. This is the prologue of the book, The Escape Artists, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison breakout of World War I. It's by Neil Bascom, and he also is the author of Hunting Achman, which I reviewed here on People of the Book on 101.95 FM a number of years ago. Both brilliant books. Neil Bascom writes with non-fiction, narrative non-fiction, with the suspense of a thriller. And if you are interested in war, in war escapes, then The Escape Artists is a perfect book to read. The next book, we're going to look at two two thrillers, both of them available. The first one is called The Death of Mrs. Westaway. It's written by Ruth Ware. It is Ruth Ware's fourth novel, begins one blustery cold night in an off-season Brighton as Harriet Westaway hurries home clutching a bag of fish and chips. She's hell to those who know her, H-A-L. Not that there are that many who do know her. Her mother was killed in a hit-and-run a few years earlier, just before Hal's 18th birthday, and Hal lost touch with her friends after she dropped out of school to take over her mother's job, telling fortunes in a small booth on the pier in order to pay the rent on their tiny run-down flat. Still struggling to make ends meet, Things have since gone from bad to worse. Hal owes a lot of money to a local loan shark and is finally run out of patience, demanding full repayment in a matter of days. With uncanny timing, the prospect of deliverance arrives in the form of an unexpected letter from a lawyer in Penzance, all but hidden amongst the deluge of red-stamped final notices, informing her that she's apparently inherited a substantial bequest from her recently deceased grandmother. It's too good to be true, surely. Not least because Hal's grandmother actually died more than 20 years ago. Hal can't possibly be the Harriet Westaway the letter is intended for. Needs must, though. She's got no other way of getting her hands on some money, and she convinces herself if anyone has the skills to turn up to a strange house and claim a woman, and claim a woman she'd never met as her grandmother, it is herself. She is one of the best cold readers around, specialising in tarot cards. She knows she's playing her clients for a fool. It's all about reading the people who sit down in front of her, not the cards they turn over. This is Ruth Ware's fourth novel, and it once again reaffirms her position as one of the best, not to mention best-selling, thriller writers around today. Her debut in A Dark Dark Wood saw a hen party turn murderous, and her 
last book, The Lion Game, also took female friendship as its subject, telling the story of four school buddies bound together by a terrible secret. In between, there was The Woman in Cabin 10, a contemporary cruise ship set twist on The Lady Vanishes, and in a similar vein, The Death of Mrs. Mrs. Westaway takes inspiration from the classics, the gothic-steeped masterpiece, Rebecca, Trepassen House, Miss West- Mrs. Westaway's huge home, is immediately reminiscent of Manderley, where, confirming her reader's suspicions, when she compares the crotchety old housekeeper Mrs. Warren to, to Rebecca de Maurier's creepy Mrs. Danvers, as well as Agatha Christie references throughout the book. This is a cleverly plotted murder mystery meets psychological family drama, and in true Ruth Ware fashion, it's dark enough to send a shiver down one spine, even if you're reading it in our spring going into hot summer days. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have a short ad break. We'll be back with some more books. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're looking at thrillers. The next book that I've got is called A Double Laugh. It's by Flynn Berry. Flynn Berry, is, this is her second book. She's a graduate of the James Missioner Center and has been awarded a Yaddo residency. She graduated from Brown University and her first novel, Under the Barrow, was awarded the Edgar Award for Best First Novel and was called A Triumph by the Sunday Times in the UK and Thrilling by the New York Times. She lives in California and as I said, this is her second book. It's called A Double Life. For the book, she took inspiration from a true crime story, the story of Lord Lucan in the UK, who in the 1970s is alleged to have murdered the family's maid, and then he disappeared. And there's been a lot of speculation in Britain since that murder about where he went, what exactly happened that led to the murder of the family maid, and his wife's story. So using that as the springboard, Flynn Berry has written her second novel called A Double Life. Some wounds need more than time. They crave revenge. Claire's father is a privileged man, handsome, brilliant, the product of an aristocratic lineage, and an expensive education surrounded by a group of devoted friends who would do anything for him. But when he becomes the prime suspect in a horrific attack on Claire's mother, an outsider who married into the elite ranks of society and dared escape her gilded cage, fate and privilege collide and a scandal erupts. Claire's father disappears overnight, his car abandoned, blood on the front seat. Thirty years after that hellish night, Claire is obsessed with uncovering the truth, and she knows that the answer is held behind the closed doors of, a beautiful, of beautiful townhouses and country estates, safeguarded by the same friends who all those years before had answered the call to protect one of their own. Because they know where Claire's father is. They helped him escape. And it's time their pristine lives met Claire's fury. So this is A Double Life by Flynn Berry. You can hear how elements of Lord Luke and Case have formed the basic story of the novel. So if you are interested in real crime becoming the basis of a very thrilling not a thriller, look to A Double Life by Flynn Berry, maybe for your book club. It's a very exciting book, and it does reannounced the arrival of Flynn Berry to the uh, to the the hallowed not quite hallowed but the the decorated lists of thriller writers people who have received awards for their thriller writing the next book we're going to look at is a book that's science fiction it's by Emma Newman it's called Before Mars strange events prompt a geologist on the Mars base to question her mission in Emma Newport's suspenseful novel Before Mars. In a future defined by corporate greed and hubris, Dr. Anna Kubrin is sent to Mars by the head 
of the powerful Gaber Corps to both work as a geologist and paint unique Mars vistas that will sell for enormous profits. Anna finds an note in her room painted in her own hand, in her own hand that warns her not to trust the basis psychologist, Dr. Arnolfi. She later discovers a footprint in the Mars dust that doesn't belong there. She is puzzled by the crew's strained behaviour and her undeniable familiar attraction to her colleague, Dr. Asil Elvin. As Anna's paranoia builds, so does pain that stems from her ambivalence about being a mother and her family's dark past. Devastating news from Earth turns up the heat considerably. In this book, Emma Newman has constructed a captivating puzzle of a tale while harrowing concludes on a poignantly hopeful note, leaving the door open for Emma Newman to add further adventures to what is now called the Planetfall series of books, but this one can be read as a standalone. The, so that's a little bit of science fiction. If you enjoyed Artemis or Andy by Andy Weir or, uh, or you like speculative, speculative science fiction and uh, some incur- inc- excursions into the Earth's closest neighbours in space, then Before Mars by Emma Newman, published by Golance, is a good book to look at. The next book, I think I've got time for one more, is called The Stranger on the Bridge. And subtitled My Journey from Despair to Hope. One January day, a stranger saved Johnny Benjamin's life. Johnny was standing on Waterloo Bridge with the intention of ending his life. A stranger came to his side, listened to him calmly, and helped guide him to safety. This moving memoir reveals what led Johnny to the bridge and explores Johnny's ongoing relationship with his health and happiness. It follows Johnny's story from childhood, including heart-rending extracts from his adolescent diaries and charts his gradual acceptance of his diagnosis with schizoaffective disorder. The book also celebrates Johnny's discovery of his life's work, campaigning for better mental health awareness to help others, which has led to his positive impact on tens of thousands of people throughout the world. Life-affirming and uplifting, Johnny's story shows how talking about our mental health can help us find compassion and hope in the darkest of moments. So that is The Stranger on the Bridge by Johnny Benjamin. It is a true story, and it is quite an inspirational read. It's published by Bluebird Books for Life, and it is also available in the shops. So it's been a full show today. I interviewed Richard Pierce about the Can Lion, the lion industry in South Africa, and then all the books that we've mentioned. If you've only heard part of the show, if you've missed the title of a book, or if you just want to see what's been reviewed on the show over the last few years, go to our Facebook page, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The full list will be there. And until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.